0: We're going to have a state-of-the-world chat with Waikato University's international law professor Alexander Gillespie, author of the multi-volume series The Causes of War and A History of the Laws of War. We also mention, if want to mention, if we have time, a new book that exposes the rise of a new kind of fascism in Europe. Al, thank you for joining us. Morena.
1: Morena, Jim. Good morning.
0: Good morning. Uh, 100,000... Pro-Palestinian protesters have marched through London. Sydney saw a big turnout as well. The United States, Al, has warned its citizens worldwide to be careful about their security. How unusual is this warning?
1: It's not particularly unusual, but this is a, a level two advisory warning, which means that people should have a increased caution. It's not level four, which means don't travel. The level four warnings you are seeing, a few come out from Israel right now, but the thing to watch is whether the terror threat levels start to increase, because that's not yet happened with the five ice countries. But there's a long history that if things kick off in the Middle East, then the terror threat levels will start moving all around the world.
0: Joe Biden's uh, $106 billion US billion funding request of Congress. The danger here is that there'll be less money for Ukraine, whatever the theoretical budget he's come up with. What are his chances of getting what he wants for the Middle East?
1: I think if he can actually get a speaker for the House of Representatives, he's got a fairly good chance, but this means that the Democrats will have to cooperate. The bigger risk here is not in the immediate term, it's at next November with the presidential election, because if Mr. Trump wins, you could get a sudden snap in foreign policy.
0: Yeah. I was reading about Russia's ghost fleet or dark fleet of 500 ships, old tankers that try to stay off the radar as they move Russian crude oil to China. And that helps keep the Russian economy survive right now. But China needs more oil than that. And one in every three barrels comes from the Middle East. And China's a friend of Iran and Qatar. And Iran is propping up Putin's military effort. Here's the question. China and Russia can't afford a wider flare-up in the Middle East. They may be grateful for the presence of the U.S. carrier task forces. And all that will add up to containment of the situation with Israel and Hamas as opposed to the World War III scenarios. What do you think of that theory,
1: please? You know, I think in economic terms, it's no one's interest to have a regional war. The problem is, is that in political terms, there's a lot of benefit for Russia and China right now to draw attention away from some of their endeavours, and at the same time it gives them a chance to deepen their relationship between those two countries, North Korea and Iran. So politically, it may be in their interest that a conflict actually sparks.
0: How big a conflict, because Operation Swords of Iron has been poised to begin for days now. I know fighting spread to the West Bank and the border with Lebanon, uh, and Iran's threatened to become involved. But would it with the American fleets there, do you think?
1: I think it's Possible. I mean, the, right now they have not. The Israeli military have not advanced into Gaza, and there's, that's probably because of concern about the hostages. There's the risk that it could turn into a Stalingrad-type situation, but probably the foremost concern is the risk of a second front opening up on northern Israel. Whether Iran would directly enter is questionable, but Hezbollah is quite likely to be engaged because they're kind of like an Iranian version of the Wagner group that can be used. They're, they're well armed, they're well trained, and it would certainly be a, a challenge for the Israelis to fight on two fronts. Will
0: the release of two of the US hostages diffuse the situation to any extent?
1: I think it's a good sign. I don't think it's going to defuse it, but it shows that they are actually talking. And the other thing to note is that the the Red Cross or the ICRC also seems to be involved, and having that intermediary is a positive sign. The
0: BBC's been under fire for not referring to what Hamas did in Israel as terrorism. It claims a long-standing tradition of being impartial between warring groups. It didn't even call the Nazis evil in World War Two. Its critics say no, it's been inconsistent in what it regards as terror or not terror. It used to refer to ISIS as a terrorist group, and it was ruling areas of land, like Hamas does in a way. Who's right here about when a group is a terrorist group or a military force? L.
1: There's different ways of looking at this question. the. the Probably the best way is looking by internationally agreed designation. So the Security Council agrees that ISIS was a terrorist group or Al-Qaeda was a terrorist group. But the Security Council is the lowest common denominator and they do not agree that Hamas is a terrorist group. But most of the Five Eyes countries consider Hamas to be a terrorist group, except New Zealand, which divides it between the political wing and the armed wing. The alternative way of looking at it is by looking at it through the laws of war because there are certain actions that are indicative of terrorist groups like hostage-taking, murder, or indiscriminate violence.
0: The protests all over the world sympathetic to the people of Gaza, invoking a wider history rather than any recent Hamas atrocities, encompassing the entire history of the region since the Exodus days of 1948. How far back do we have to go, actually, to get context here?
1: It, that depends who you ask, because everyone's got a different starting date. For some, it's 2006. For some, it's the the Israeli-Palestinian conflict from the 1960s. For others, it's the formation of Israel. Some people go back even further than that, and they can go back to the 19th century, the 7th century, or all the way back to biblical times, Context is very important, but what I think the focus needs to be right now is not so much on the past, but the future, and that is what, what peace looks like, and that is the two-state solution. And also, critically, I'm making sure that everyone op- obeys by the rules of war, because if they don't, the risk is that some acts are so egregious that you take the chances of peace and you push it backwards, and you just continue this intergenerational cycle of violence. Yeah.
0: So what will happen to the rest of the hostages that Hamas holds? Are they actually... The key to whether this gets settled without full Israeli incursion, would Israel risk their deaths, I suppose, is the question.
1: They're one of the keys. Hostage taking is one of the clear acts in international law, which is illegal. And the clear policy is that you should never negotiate with hostages, because if you do, you make yourself beholden in the future that acts will repeat. The problem between the theory and the reality is that no country wants to see its own citizens being exploited, especially on the internet. So many countries will, despite what they say, they will negotiate. If they don't negotiate, I think you will see a reprisal rate of at least 10 to 1, possibly higher.
0: Well, as you've pointed out, where does Hamas go if it's thoroughly vanquished? Because that would seem to ensure that this conflict will simmer at a higher level than flare-ups in the past.
1: You've got two questions here, because the first one is, where does the population of Gaza go? Where you've got two million people who may be pushed further afield, maybe even into Egypt, although Egypt certainly doesn't want that. With regards to the fighters, and this is a, a repeat of what happened in the invasion of Lebanon in 1982, where they tried to push the PLO out. No country wants these fighters. No one's going to actually voluntarily put their hand up and say, please come to us. What I think you're seeing right now is very close to a repetition of history with the war on terror, whereby you had a terrible act that causes a reprisal or revenge which becomes disproportionate and you end up in a place which is so far from where you started that you can't rekindle what peace looks like. Yes.
0: Well, the Washington Institute think tank has been tracking public opinion in Gaza for some time. And while there is still firm support for Palestinian causes and also for the presence of various armed factions, a majority of Gazans don't seem to want to be governed by Hamas's political wing. Hamas has gradually lost support among people in the wider region and 50 percent of Gazans are or were prepared to accommodate Israel with that two-state solution you mentioned based on where the borders were in 1967. So how much of the hostility is being generated by Iran's hardline stances and and the ambition to eradicate Israel?
1: I, I think a considerable amount. I, I think it's critical for people to note that Hamas is not the Gazan population, and it's certainly not the Palestinian people either. But some of these groups, whether it's Hamas or whether it's hardline regimes, they, they want the chaos and they want the violence because it gives them legitimacy. But on the other hand, with regards to the Gaza Strip, you've got 16 years of blockade and a terrible situation in terms of humanitarian concerns, and that also fuels the rise of some of these groups.
0: We can see the differing sympathies emerge with regard to the Al-Ali Baptist Hospital deaths and the debate over whether they were caused by Israeli musicians, uh, munitions sorry, or a rocket launch failure from Gaza itself. How crucial will this be when blame is finally assigned to the chances of the Middle East settling down?
1: The attack on hospitals is one of the most egregious things that can be done in times of war. This is where you've got wounded people and sick people who can't flee. And there's a particularly strong presumption in the laws of war that you do not attack such places. The wider problem is that the attacks on hospitals, medical workers and their means of transport are increasing. And this is not just in regards to the Gaza Strip. This is also in the Ukraine. and We've seen it in Africa as well. With regards to your question about blame, that assumes that you will actually be able to find out who did this atrocious event. The ideal way is you'd have an independent, neutral, fact-finding mission that would come in. The problem is neither side wants to get such third parties involved right now.
0: I'll have to save the chat with you about emerging fascism in Eastern Europe for a, another time, maybe in the next week or two. But the titles of past books of yours uh, provide the last question really today. Are, are there conditions in place to cause a very big war
1: or not? We're going in the wrong direction right now. I've studied war and conflict for the last decades, and I can see a number of impediments towards peace. We're going in the wrong direction at speed. We're not there yet, but we need to sober up because the conditions are not pleasing.
0: Professor Al Gillespie, thank you as always for your time with us this morning.
1: You're welcome. Thanks, Jim.